Welcome to Dam the River, episode 2, from the muddy banks of the Waitaki. I'm your host, James Macbeth Dam. In the first episode, we talked about the development of hydroelectric power in New Zealand, from the first forays at Bullendale and Reefton, to the municipal and government-led schemes at Waipori and Lake Coleridge. That brought us up to about the end of the First World War. In this episode, we're going to pick up the story at that point and go through till around the end of the Second World War. This was the time in which New Zealand began to modernise and electricity was a large part of that. To quote Rennie from Power to the People, State-generated hydroelectricity, which was vastly cheaper than the small local gas or steam engine-driven schemes, was the essential catalyst for the revolutionary changes which occurred in this era. It was also a time of big social changes, with rapid urban growth, the Depression and the election of the first Labour government. All through this time, demand for electricity grew and the government turned provider in a big way. The North Island, which had overtaken the South Island in terms of population, was crying out for power and three major schemes were built during this time. Mangahau, Arapuni and Waikari Moana. This provided the North Island with the start of a national grid and the final dam we'll cover in this episode, Waitaki, would be the first step in linking the powerful rivers of the Lower South Island to that grid. In its construction, it unleashed some powerful social changes that still resonate to this day. In the last episode, I mentioned Evan Parry, who was with the Ministry of Public Works. He was born in Wales in 1865, and after working in London, came to New Zealand to be the first electrical engineer at the Ministry of Public Works in July of 1911. He was elevated to Chief Electrical Engineer in 1913, and headed the hydroelectric branch of the department. Parry was a devout believer in the power of electricity, writing that it was one of the most essential agents in national reconstruction and the nerve system of the community that touches every phase of national life. After writing a report on the construction difficulties at Lake Coleridge that I mentioned in the previous episode, he then got to work on a report that would be the basis of hydroelectric developments for the next two decades. With Christchurch and Dunedin being reasonably well served, at least for the time being, by Coleridge and Waipori, his focus was on providing for Auckland and Wellington. His suggestions were for three plants, Mangahau to serve Wellington and the Lower North Island, Arapuni to serve Auckland and the Waikato, and Waikaribuana to serve Hawke's Bay and the Bay of Plenty. He also envisaged a transmission network that would connect the three and allow for extra power, especially from Waikaribuana, to supplement the network. As part of the move to a national grid, the government adopted a single standard of power. In 1920, three-phase 230-volt AC, 50 hertz, was made the new standard. At the time, 29 of the 55 plants in the country generated DC power, and of the remainder that generated AC, only 18 of them were three-phase. However, though these were the minority of plants, they generated 60% of the power. The adoption of a standard throughout the country was key to the development of a national grid. Mangahau was the first of the schemes recommended by Parry that was built. Construction started in 1920, with the first part of the project completed by 1924. A third upper dam was built between 1925 and 1927. The Mangahau hydroelectric station is in the hills behind Shannon, not too far from Levin and Palmerston North. The river collects water from the Tararua Ranges, and after passing through a series of dams, tunnels and turbines, it is released into the Tokomaru River. It produces around 19 megawatts of power. In 
The working conditions on the site were pretty bleak. There was heavy bush, steep terrain and rain. A lot of it. It rained on about 200 days every year. Whilst some men, especially the married ones, lived at Shannon, most of the men lived as close as possible to the construction site. Most of the single men were packed into tents in a cramped valley. It was described as a frontier town. Here little softening influence penetrated, nor any social restraint to check the natural proclivities of what has been described as the hardest collection of individuals to be found from one end of the North Island to the other. A strong, hardy, rough crowd who worked hard, fought hard, many a Homeric combat was fought out round by round on the sand of the riverbed, and when payday came, gambled hard. A second camp at Arapiti was more civilised, with 17 cottages for married men, and 84 huts for single men. They had a YMCA room, and concerts and dances were organised for the men. However, the poor living conditions of the men were noticed, such as when MPs came to visit in 1920 and reported that the men were living in tents in the heart of the bush without floors or fires, slushing about in the mud and the muck, with no provision for drying clothes. The work itself was, if anything, more difficult. There was constant flooding on site, and though no one drowned, there were a number of fatalities during construction. A broken ventilation system in one of the tunnels led to the deaths of two men from asphyxiation, and then a further five people died in the process of trying to rescue them, including the site's engineer-in-chief. Despite all of this, good progress was being made, and the powerhouse was complete by 1924. However, the gap in the Mangahau Dam needed to be completed, and this was done in a hurry due to the high risk of floods. An atmosphere of haste pervaded the valley. On the gap itself, where a score of men in gumboots stood to the knee in the wet concrete, which they shoveled as the chutes shot it down to them from the mixes above, there was a feverish haste. All over there appeared to be a constant watchfulness. Somewhere above, in the bush-clad valley, was the flood, an enemy whose powers were well known, and frantically they strove to erect a wall against his certain coming. Day and night the work went on, one set of men, well fed and rested, taking up the shovels of the preceding gang, ever building higher against the common foe. The Prime Minister, William Massey, opened the Mangahau station on the 3rd of November 1924. Initially power was provided to Horofenua, with 100 kilometres of lines carrying the power to Wellington soon after. Soon, the rapid uptake of power from Wellington and the other towns in the area meant that the Mangahau was struggling to keep up with demand. Construction on the third dam at Mangahau, called Upper Mangahau No. 1, began in 1925. This would increase the storage capacity of the whole system almost threefold. Around 500 men worked on this dam, and having learnt from the difficulties of the first two dams in the project, more attention was paid to the living conditions. The YMCA on site, which was subsidised by the Ministry of Public Works, made a difference to the quality of life, and subsequently, a better quality of workmen was maintained. This site also saw the first introduction of a medical insurance scheme on a public works camp, which was operated by an elected medical association. This model would be adopted in other schemes, as we will see later. With Wellington and the Lower North Island sated, the question of how to supply New Zealand's biggest city, Auckland, still remained. A steam-driven plant had been built on King's Wharf in 1913, and this was the main source of power until 1930, when it was supplanted by Arapuni. This was the second scheme on the Waikato, after the privately built Horahora, which the government had subsequently bought. 
By the 1960s, when the Waikato schemes were fully developed, the river would provide nearly half of all New Zealand's power. However, unlike the South Island schemes, which are dominated by one or two extremely large dams on a river, the Waikato involved a chain of stations, mostly in narrow gorges. Arapuni was one such gorge, about 10 kilometres upstream of Horohora. Construction began in 1924, but the project was blighted by delays and misfortune. The construction of the powerhouse was put out to tender, and this was done by an English company, Armstrong Whitworth. After having their bid accepted, they had problems with the site which the government had selected. The government disagreed, and effectively no progress was made on the powerhouse in 1927. However, the dam and the penstocks were proceeding well, which then, in turn, ramped up the pressure on the government and the contractor to complete the powerhouse. By the end of 1927, the government agreed to step in and take over the construction of the powerhouse, which finally began in April of 1928. The first turbine began running on June the 4th, 1929, and the second and third turbines were in operation by Christmas of that year. The King's Wharf station was shut down in March 1930, no longer needed. Or so they thought. On June the 7th, 1930, just a year after it had opened, a massive crack appeared in the intakes at Arapuni, running parallel to the river. It extended more than 300 metres upstream from the powerhouse and downstream to the falls. A whole block of land shifted. A 5 centimetre gap appeared in the concrete where the spillway joined the intake structure. The penstocks broke away from the concrete encasing their tops and the powerhouse itself tilted slightly. Water started leaking into the powerhouse. The station was closed, the head race was drained and Auckland was pissed. The Auckland Power Board, tasked with selling the apparently endless quantities of this wonderful new power, had just ramped up an advertising campaign to bring power to the masses. The King's Wharf station was reinstated and a new steam turbine was ordered and a new steam turbine was ordered in to meet the increased demand. Opposition politicians could smell blood. Bob Semple, who would later be the Minister of Public Works under the first Labour government, called Arapuni the greatest engineering blunder and political crime of its kind in modern history. The government did what governments do. They commissioned a report into the disaster. The author of the report was a Swedish professor, P.G. Horvell. He diagnosed the problem as capillary action resulting from the water in the head race penetrating, swelling and fracturing the rock. He had no concerns, however, about the site of the dam or the engineering competence of the people who built it. Repair work began in January of 1931. Almost 800 men were employed for this repair and the cost was substantial. The head race was strengthened and lined and the entire length of the overflow channel was concreted. The lining consisted of thousands of interlocking hexagonal tiles, steel plates and bitumen, nicknamed the Horval lining. It was designed to stop the water penetrating into the rock. Water began filling back into the system in March of 1932 and power was being generated again by April. King's Wharf could again be relegated to a backup, however it was still used from time to time, especially during the war. It was finally decommissioned for good in 1968. The last of Parry's three proposed stations was Waikari Moana, which was itself made up of three smaller dams. Waikari Moana is in Te Uruwera 
and is the deepest lake in the country. The lake was formed around 2200 years ago when a massive landslide blocked off the river, forming a natural earth dam. It was identified as a potential site that could supply power to the Bay of Plenty, the Hawke's Bay, Gisborne, Wairoa and then into the wider network. The first part of the scheme was Tuai, which was authorised by Cabinet in 1926. The project, mainly undertaken by men with pick and shovel, went relatively smoothly and the penstocks were finished by October of 1928. The first generation unit was commissioned in February 1929 with the second following mid-year. This could produce 32 megawatts and took some of the pressure off the Mangahau. Tuai took water from Lake Kaitawa, a small holding lake that had been created just below Waikanemuana itself. The second plant here was Piipawa. This took water from Lake Whakamarino, which was the outlet from the Tuai powerhouse. This was built from 1939 to 1943, producing 40 megawatts after running water through a tunnel almost 3 kilometres long. The third station was Kaitawa, just below the earth dam at the bottom of the lake, which had been formed by the ancient landslide. This generated 32 megawatts of power, and the outflow from this fed into Lake Kaitawa, the storage lake for Tuai. The whole network was linked by spillways and control gates, operated remotely from Tuai, ensuring that the system runs at maximum efficiency. The completion of the three plants at Waikare Moana meant that Parry's plans, first laid out in 1918, were now completed. Waikare Moana was connected to Napier, which had already been connected to Mangahau. By 1931, New Plymouth had been connected to Mangahau as well, and with the Stratford Arapuni line, finished in 1934, the North Island's three major schemes were all connected. So who needed all of this power, and what were they using it for? From the first public scheme at Reefton, New Zealanders had been enthusiastic consumers of electricity. Across the whole country, connections had risen from 17,000 in 1912 to 45,000 by 1916. Almost a third of dwellings were lit by electricity, a rate only bettered by the USA and Canada. As Rennie writes in Power to the People, In New Zealand, electricity's greatest impact was in all types of industry, but especially light industry and in the home. Electric motors, compact, controllable, cheap, transformed existing industries and created new ones. A whole range of domestic appliances became available which started the process of changing the nature of housework and home living. The labour and time-saving features of these appliances provided much of the technological underpinning for the development of feminism and careers for women outside of the home. Electric motors were introduced into factories and mills where steam engines and other forms of motive energy were used. There were many advantages to switching over. Steam engines required significant amounts of capital expenditure, not just for the engine, but also the boiler, as well as fuel storage. By contrast, electric motors required only capital for the motor and some cabling. The state had made the large capital investment in building the power plant and the transmission lines. Electric engines required less attention, they didn't need a stoker or an engineer to keep a constant eye on them. They were more efficient at converting energy into motion, and could be turned on and off with the flick of a switch, unlike having to stoke a boiler and wait until a certain temperature was reached. Electric motors could drive smaller processes than steam, coal or gas, and they were clean, especially compared to the latter two fuels. This was an ever more important factor, especially in places like Christchurch, which had issues with smog.
Electric motors made their way into any and all type of industry that required some form of motive power, including mills, flax mills, flour mills, sawmills, tanneries. The railway yards were another area of industry where electricity led to a significant change in the way labour was utilised. The big four railway workshops at Otahuhu, Hutt, Addington and Hillside were some of the largest heavy machinery facilities in the country. Thanks to cheap hydropower from Coleridge, Addington was able to expand in the 1920s to become Christchurch's biggest factory. Between 1925 and 1928, 125 electric-driven machines were installed at Addington, including lathes, planes, cranes, grinders and welders. The time taken to overhaul a locomotive dropped from 55 days to 38. However, the efficiencies gained from electricity also led to the number of employees dropping by 89 in the same period. As a primary producing nation, the industry most tied to electrical expansion was farming. By 1939, close to 96% of our exports were farming products. So even though farming wasn't a big user of electricity compared to other industries, the sheer amount of economic activity and number of farms meant it was a significant user. The biggest changes brought by electricity were on dairy farms and in the freezing works. Introduced in 1933, electric motors led to the conveyor belt assembly line being used in the preparation of carcasses. Each butcher would perform one cut before the carcass went along to the next worker. This allowed for an increase in production, but also allowed the freezing works to replace skilled butchers with unskilled workers who would only have to be trained for one specific role. While the freezing works required a large number of workers, the conveyor system allowed the employers to reduce their labour costs. Lowering labour costs was one of the main attractions of electricity for employers. Either by enabling unskilled labour to replace skilled, as seen at the meatworks, or just shedding jobs as a result of the increase in productivity, the true efficiency gains wouldn't be fully realised until after the war. A unique electrical farming innovation was pioneered by the Ashburton Power Board in the 1930s, electric tractors. Six were put into operation, with the lighter engines being more successful than the heavier ones. These machines were connected to a power source via a long cable that rotated and wound itself in and out as the tractor moved around the paddock. Though not ultimately very successful, the experiment did lead to lots of media coverage and there were many inquiries into the scheme, including from Hitler's Third Reich. A more successful innovation was the electric fence, invented by Bill Gallagher in 1938. More successful than electric tractors were electric trams, the kings of urban transport in this era. Petrol and diesel buses started being introduced in the 1930s, but due to fuel shortages caused by the war, trams were still number one well into the 1950s. It's also worth remembering that the internal combustion engine wasn't always the most dominant form of motor vehicle. Christchurch was an enthusiastic adopter of electric vehicles, introducing night rates for battery charging in 1915. The council even introduced its own electric vehicle garage in 1919, which was, by 1921, servicing 48 council and private electric vehicles. However, this was the peak of electric vehicle uptake, at least until now. The MED's last EV, a Walker truck, wasn't decommissioned until 1947, by which time it had clocked up more than 320,000 kilometres. Most trains were still coal, except for a few that ran in the tunnels. Otera and Littleton, as well as the Wellington passenger lines. Electricity led to the development of new industries, such as the invention of the electric sewing machine, which revolutionised clothing manufacture. 
One example is Miller's, founded in Christchurch in 1925, making clothes, especially suits and trousers, at affordable prices. The company expanded each year, even through the Depression, and even invented and patented their own steam iron in 1932. With the advent of many electrical domestic appliances, much of the workforce in the clothing and sewing industry was made up of women who started moving into the workforce in large numbers. Aside from lighting, the domestic use of electricity really took off from the 1920s up until the Depression, and then from the Depression till the outbreak of World War II. Many municipal authorities wanted to connect people so that they could sell them the cheap hydropower supplied to them by the state. The main uses were lighting, then ironing, followed by heating and vacuum cleaners. Many of the modern appliances we take for granted were beginning to be made available, including washing machines, toasters, electric hobs, kettles, fridges and water heaters, but only the very well-off could afford them. There was a battle between gas and electricity to power the kitchen hob. In cities that had both, gas was generally the cheaper option, and gas hobs still outsold electric ones during the 20s. The domestic price of electricity had halved between 1923 and 1935, and so by the 30s, electric hobs had started to take over. Electric hobs also had the benefit of not smelling so bad. One of the most obvious ways in which electricity announced itself was in entertainment. In 1921, Professor Robert Jack of the University of Otago transmitted New Zealand's first radio programme, the following year, he founded the Otago Radio Association and began broadcasting on 4AB, the oldest station in the Commonwealth. By the end of 1923, New Zealand had 11 radio stations transmitting to over 3,000 receivers. The first radios were low-powered, battery-operated crystal sets that you had to be a bit of a hobbyist to operate. Radio was key to linking the country, especially the isolated rural areas. Politicians were fast fans of the medium, and after the scrimmager incident in the run-up to the 1935 election, the first Labour government brought broadcasting within the realm of the state. The other big innovation around this time was the moving pictures, or movies, as the kids call them these days. With the introduction of talkies in 1929, movies were one of the biggest forms of entertainment and leisure activity by the 1930s and 40s. Picture theatres popped up all over the place, with their neon signage another display of the electric future. The key broker between the state and the consumer was the local electric power board. In 1918, the government passed the Electric Power Board Act, which enabled these organisations to be formed. The idea was that they would pop up all over the country, and by encompassing an area with both a more dense urban section and a less populated rural area, the urban part would subsidise the connections to the more diffuse and isolated places in the board's catchment. However, it didn't always work out like that. The Southland Progress League had been keen to bring electricity to the area for a few years and were big supporters of the Power Board Act. After the legislation had been passed, the Southland Electric Power Board was the first to be gazetted in November of 1919. Working quickly, by March of the next year, they had a loan approved, allowing them to build the ambitious Monowai power station. Though construction was authorised by the board in April of 1920, it didn't actually begin until January of 1922, due to post-war shortages. Lake Monowai is around 100 kilometres from Invercargill, and about 250 metres above sea level. The only outlet from the lake is the Monowai River, which drops rapidly down to the Waiar River, losing around 75 metres in just over 6 kilometres. An earth dam was built at the lake, 
raising the level by almost three metres. A second dam blocked the old route of the Monowai, diverting the water into a canal, then a pipeline, on the way to the power station, which generates six megawatts before releasing the water back into the wire. While the dam was being constructed, the Southland Power Board enthusiastically connected the area, bringing in almost 6,500 customers by the time the power station began operation, with the number doubling over the next five years. However, the two main population centres in the region, Invercargill and Bluff, remained outside the Southland Power Board, buying power in bulk from Monoway and then on-selling it to their customers directly. Struggling to turn a profit, the Southland Power Board asked the new Labour government in 1935 for help to obtain a loan. Instead, the Labour government responded by nationalising the failing Power Board. The state and the Labour government would also feature strongly in the construction of the Waitaki Hydroelectric Power Plant, the final project that we'll be looking at in this episode, and perhaps the most significant of all of New Zealand's dams. While the developments in the 20s had mainly concentrated on building the North Island network, By the middle of the decade, it was becoming clear that the three big South Island stations, Lake Coleridge, Waipori and now Monowai, would soon be unable to meet demand. Domestic usage had increased faster than the Ministry of Public Works had anticipated, and they tasked GP Anderson with finding the next site for a major scheme. With a copy of Hayes' 1904 report, he set about finding a new site. The new site needed to serve the two main population centres, Christchurch and Dunedin, as well as preparing for potential future linkages to both people and power in central Otago. The Waitaki River, a large braided river that takes water from the base of the Southern Alps and carries it to the Pacific Ocean, seemed to be the outstanding candidate. Today, the Waitaki River boasts eight hydro stations, which generate around 30% of New Zealand's total hydropower, much of it sent to the North Island via the DC Link. Before the scheme was approved, Christchurch had been making noises about building its own scheme on the Waimakariri River, an idea that was first floated before Coleridge was built. However, the minimum flow of the Waitaki was three times greater than that of the Waimak, and its relatively low altitude meant that it was less likely to be interrupted by adverse weather conditions such as the frequent snowfalls that had disrupted Coleridge. The river is the border between Canterbury and Otago, so it was an ideal location to serve the two major population centres, and the size of the river, and the volume of water it carries, made it a perfect candidate for hydroelectric generation. The Waitaki would be the first major run-of-river scheme. Some dams, such as Lake Coleridge, took water from a lake, through tunnels or penstocks, and drove it into a turbine, while other schemes dammed a river to form a lake, then returned the water to the river a few kilometres downstream after using it to turn the turbines. The Waitaki involved damming the river and creating a storage lake on the river itself, with the power station built into the dam, taking water from the storage lake and dumping it back into the river on the other side. The chosen site was about 8 kilometres upstream from the town of Kūrau. Kūrau is an anglicisation of the Māori name for a nearby mountain, Te Kahurau. Today it boasts just over 300 residents, but in the late 20s and early 30s, Its population was boosted by hundreds of men working on the dam, and it became a hotbed of radical socialist thinking. Construction on the dam began in mid-1928, with the rather optimistic target for completion set at 1931. Work on site was carried out 24 hours a day, with men working in one of three shifts, under a battery of floodlights at night. Waitaki was the last major project to be built largely by manual labour, with pick, shovel and wheelbarrow removing more than 500,000 cubic metres of soil. 
The decision to use manual labour was in part due to the depression, using this large public works project to soak up some unemployed men. According to the engineer-in-chief, to assist in the relief of unemployment, manual labour is being utilised where practicable and reasonably economical in preference to excavating machinery. All of these men required accommodation. Waitaki Hydro built two camps, one on the upper terraces with full facilities, while the lower camp was cold and exposed to the chilly winds, earning the nickname of Siberia. A third camp was below the dam called Gettysville, and unofficial shantytowns popped up on the fringes, known as the Willows. The men in this camp weren't able to obtain official work, but scraped by with casual shifts, rabbiting and looking for gold. The work itself was hard and unsafe. During construction, three men drowned, eight more died as a result of accidents on site, and many more were injured. By the end of the project there had been an astonishing 1,864 compensation payments for death and injury, which accounted for 1.6% of the total construction cost. There were few safety precautions. On average there was one accident a day. This was life, and in some cases, death, before health and safety legislation came along. Following the example set by some of the North Island schemes, a Waitaki Hydro Medical Association was formed in 1928. Men paid a monthly subscription, which was deducted from their wages. The WHMA had an agreement with the local doctor in Kura and the local hospital in Omaru to provide services in exchange for a proportion of its income. The Ministry of Public Works also contributed to the WHMA via compensation payments. Due to the success of this scheme, it was made compulsory by the Ministry of Public Works on subsequent construction projects. The project was delayed significantly in 1931 by the largest flood in 50 years. Around this time, it was also discovered that the rock on the Otago side of the river was not as solid as first thought, a problem that could be remedied by further excavation. As the depression deepened, financial constraints forced cuts to the workforce, from a peak of 1,230 men down to 1,000, with those remaining having their wages cut by 10%. In 1932, wages and salaries were cut again, and the number of people employed by the Ministry of Public Works was reduced by 40%. In June of that year, the workforce on the site was halved to around 500, mainly by getting rid of all the single men. However, the Ministry of Public Works was worried about leaving the site in an unfinished state, especially with the risk of another significant flood, which would knock back years of work on the project. In April 1933, 400 relief workers were employed, bringing the total back up to 900. With more men on site, good progress was made. The Canterbury side of the dam was completed by June of 1933, and the gap to the other side of the river was closed by 1934, when the lake began to fill. Waitaki initially produced 30 megawatts of power, around half of the South Island's total needs. As mentioned before, this was just the first of the schemes on the Waitaki, which would reach its full generational capacity much later. Waitaki was officially opened on the 27th of October 1934 by Lord Bledisloe, he who gave his name to the cup which Kurao's favourite son, Richie McCaw, would win so many times. Though they don't have the same name recognition these days, I'd argue that a number of Kurao's residents at the time of the dam's construction would go on to have much more significant roles in New Zealand history than our Ritchie. The Waitaki Hydroelectric Scheme wasn't the only thing under construction in Kūrā in the late 20s and early 30s. 
A group of radical socialists who were involved with construction would meet and discuss ideas that would come to form the 1938 Social Security Act, described by Michael King as the crowning achievement of the first Labour government. This originated from the large number of men working on the site, the poor pay and conditions, and the rate of injuries and accidents as previously described. The first doctor employed by the WHMA was D.G. McMillan, who had moved to Kūrau in 1929 upon graduating from the medical school a bit further down the road in Otago. He had been associated with the Labour Party since 1923, and by the early 1930s he was getting more and more interested in politics, including writing pamphlets for distribution around Kūrau. Along with his wife Ethel, many leading figures of the Labour Party stayed with the Macmillans at Kūrau, though none were more important than his friend Arnold Nordmeyer. Heinrich Arnold Nordmeyer was born in Dunedin in 1901, the son of a German seaman who had found work on a gold dredge at Alexandra, the type mentioned in our previous episode. Nordmeyer was ordained as a Presbyterian minister in 1925, the year in which he moved to take up a position at the church in Kūrau. Macmillan, Nordmeyer and others, including Andrew Davidson, the headmaster of the Kūrau school, developed their ideas about the role of the state at this time, including putting forward a case for healthcare that was free, universal and comprehensive. As work on the Waitaki scheme neared completion, Macmillan resigned from his role and moved to Dunedin. He won the electorate of Dunedin West as Labour swept to power at the 1935 election. His friend Nordmeyer had won the seat of Aomaru after resigning from his ministry position. Even in a government that is remembered as very left-wing, Macmillan and Nordmeyer were considered to be radicals. They were closely aligned with John A. Lee, whose struggle with Michael Joseph Savage, Peter Fraser and Walter Nash eventually led to his expulsion from the party in 1941. In July of 1936, Fraser, who was the Minister of Health, appointed Macmillan the chairman of of the National Health Insurance Investigation Committee. After Labour was re-elected in 1938 with even stronger support, Nordmeyer and Macmillan championed the introduction of the 1938 Social Security Act, which greatly expanded the scope of the welfare state, introducing free healthcare services and extending benefits for the aged, sick and unemployed. Another radical from the Kurau commune who went into politics was Jerry Skinner. Initially, he had worked as a carpenter on the Waitaki scheme, where he had gone on to be a union organiser. Along with Nordmeyer, Davidson and the Macmillans, he was key in the development of the medical insurance scheme. In 1938, he was elected MP for Motueka, and he served in the army during World War II, rising to the rank of Major before Peter Fraser brought him back to New Zealand and elevated him to Cabinet. He was the MP for Buller from 1946, up until his death in 1962, serving as Deputy PM under the second Labour government of Walter Nash from 1957 to 1960. Though DG McMillan would dip out of parliamentary politics in 1943, Nordmeyer had become Minister of Health in 1941. In this role, he would introduce state subsidies for doctor's visits. Even though he lost his Aomaru seat in 1949, he would return to Parliament in 1951, winning the island-based seat in a by-election after the death of Peter Fraser. After unsuccessfully challenging Walter Nash for the leadership of the Labour Party, he would become Finance Minister under Nash in the second Labour government, delivering the now infamous Black Budget. 
He would eventually become party leader after Labour lost the government benches, though he was never PM, being rolled by Norm Kirk in the mid-1960s. After DG McMillan's death in 1951, his wife Ethel entered politics. She won the seat of North Dunedin in 1953, which she held until 1975. Despite her more than 20 years in Parliament, and her two decades of political activity with her husband before that, Ethel didn't get a senior role in the third Labour government of 1972, perhaps due to her frosty relationship with the leader, Kirk. At the same time that a large part of our national power infrastructure was being built, many of the concepts that underpin our social security safety net were being thought up. A radical group of thinkers, a doctor, a minister, a teacher and a union leader, had come together to try and make life safer, easier and ultimately better for the workers on the dam. Their ideas would see them elected to parliament and then become enshrined in legislation that would go on to improve the lives of millions of New Zealanders. There is some irony in that at the same time this social contract was being restructured, reformed and in some cases torn up following the radical changes under the fourth Labour government. The same government was also dismantling the power network that these workers had built for the state. But that's a topic for a future episode. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, then subscribe on iTunes and rate and review us too. I don't know if it does anything, but everyone else says it at the end of the podcast, so I kind of feel like I might as well say it too. Damn the River was researched, written, presented and produced by me, James Macbeth Dan, at Studio 574 in Christchurch. You can follow me on Twitter at EdMusic. That's at E-D-M-U-Z-I-K. I know it's dumb, but I'm not changing it now.